Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks. WalterParks.com if you're interested in hearing more of Walter's music. And if you would like to reach out to me, you can always do that. JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I'd love to hear from you. And I'd like to thank uh, Devine Dial at WPVMFM for all the good work she does making this show possible. And we really do appreciate your work, Devine. Thank you ever, ever so much. And if you would like to also find out more about other projects I'm doing, you might look at imaginativestorm.com, doing some writing projects there. And we would love to have you be part of it if you would like to to take a look at that, imaginativestorm.com. As you know, if you've been listening to this show over the past few years, you know, sometimes I have people on the show I've never met before in my entire life, and I get to know them on air as we talk throughout our conversation. And other times I have the honor, the privilege, the joy, if you will, of getting together with people whom I've known for a long, long time. And today, today I have somebody on Twice Five Miles Radio I've known since the early 90s. And you may know her as well if you live in Asheville. Her name is Glynis Redmond. She's a poet, uh, a teacher, a a writer, an activist, uh, a world traveler. Glynis is now living down in South Carolina. She was a longtime resident of Asheville, North Carolina. I'm really glad to have Glynis on because uh, among all of the things she does, one of the things that Glynis has done over the years, she's taken a deep, strong leadership role in the poetry community in Asheville and Greenville and also all over the country. She's earned her living for years being a speaker, standing up in front of people and inspiring them to write poetry, to engage poetically. And Glynis was also one of the original members of the Asheville poetry scene back in the day when we were operating with the Green Door in downtown Asheville. So Glynis Redmond, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Hello, Nave. It is so good to talk to you today. And hello, Asheville and everybody else listening. But a special shout out to Asheville because the radio station is based there and our deep connections that we have with the West North Carolina mountains. It is another one of my forever homes, even though I've been away almost a decade now. Oh, goodness. I didn't realize you'd been away from Asheville so much. You were you were such a presence there and still are. So you can be anywhere in the world and people still embrace you as somebody who's a resident of the Asheville area. Well, Navi, I'd like to say that I became a poet in South Carolina with my eighth grade teacher, Miss Sargent, who gave me a pen and said, write. But My wings did not unfurl until I went up the mountain 60 miles and walked through the Carolina Lane into the Green Door. That's when I started to fly with poetry. 
Well, I'm glad that you brought this up, Glennis, because you're giving a shout out to Asheville. And for those folks listening out there, the newcomers to Asheville and the people who live feel from Asheville, the, the time that Glennis is talking about was one of the most fertile times that Asheville has had in years regarding poetry. It, it was a vital, vital scene. So Glennis, what I would love for you to do to bring the people listening in the Asheville area and beyond up to speed, I would like for you to storytell a bit of your experience around the Green Door. And the reason that I'm asking that is because I've had other poets on this show talking about that wonderful time. So would you just give us a sense of what it was like? And I'll start by saying, I remember you walking through the green door one night and I remember you stepping up on stage and nobody had ever seen you before. And when you stepped off the stage, we all thought, my God, where did this woman come from? And you were fantastic that first night and you've never stopped. Thank you for that. I was living in Simpsonville, South Carolina, married at the time. I think my daughters were 18 months or somewhere around that. They were toddlers. They're 31 now. Um, so if that gives you an idea of time that has lapsed. I was one of these women who did not really travel at night. I didn't go out much. I was a clinical counselor for the state of South Carolina. My health had begun to fail just a little. I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and I was looking within for something to keep me on the planet. I mean, and I mean that I'm not just being metaphorical. I just knew there was something missing. And so I got this flyer. It was a blue flyer. I think I probably still have it somewhere in my archive that said Poetry Slam, Asheville, North Carolina. And it had Alan Wolf and Ginger West, and it had a telephone number. So I called the number and this zany voice came on. It was like, hello. And I said, what is a poetry slam? It's Think Olympic scoring with poetry. And I was talking to Alan at that time. I didn't know it. And he said, come on up. You'll love it. You'll have fun. And so I literally got in my car, very nervous, left my husband at the time and my daughters in his care and drove. And I remember as I backed out of the driveway, a flock of birds just went like that. And I'm a bird person, birds always talk to me. And then I went up the mountain and as I was going up the mountain, crossing the South Carolina, North Carolina line, there was a shooting star and I made my wish and I just kept on driving and made it to Asheville very shakily. I had to go down the alley, Carolina Lane. And I was like, I am not really sure about this. You know, here I am all, you know, just buttoned up down this alley. And I was met by this biker dude, red hair, biker jacket. And I really was convinced I was gonna die that night. <laughs> and lo and behold, that was Pat Storm who said to me, welcome, they are going to love you here. He did not know me, he did not know my poetry, but he was the one who welcomed me into the green door. And I shakily read some poems that I had been writing during my counseling stint. And afterwards, Bob Falls came up and asked if I wanted to do Poetry Alive. And I have a poem about that, if you want me to share it. It's called Discovery, about this whole experience that I'm talking about. That was my doorway into 
not poetry because I was already writing, but it was a doorway into uh, performance poetry. It was a doorway into slam. It was a doorway into poetry alive. And I thought I had just begun my life in earnest when I walked through those doors. So Glennis, do you by chance have that poem on hand? Yes, I do. Would you, would you read it for us, please? I will definitely read it for you, Nabe. Discovery. The epigraph reads, won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Cause all I ever have, redemption songs, Bob Marley. The truly powerful thing is grace. It's amazing flight. Just when I thought I was grounded and lost, I found myself driving 60 miles up through the fire of the flatlands, traveling amongst the Blue Ridge, where the mountain peaked with purpose, where I heard them speak in a language of shooting stars and flocks of wrens rising, pointing me in the direction of within. Sure, there were flyers too, announcing the poetry slam at the Asheville Poetry Festival, but how this poet loves the long hand script of the universe. So let me just say, poetry called my name in many ways. And I saw, listened and followed. I found myself walking between the worlds down a dark alley alone, Carolina Lane, where a tribe of word warriors were bending their bows, slinging their hearts around in the shape of healing. Through the green door, I caught an arrow that pierced my already broken heart with poetry. The whole shattered mess flexed into a mending. Into my lungs, I breathe air, only the height, heightened altitude could bring in the shift in perspective. My throat, a clenched fist open, threw off the boot that tamped down 300 years of silence. Each poem, a fashion hammer, flying out of my mouth with the fluency of rage and love, songs of freedom. With sojourner's ink, I warmed my veins, shape-shifted myself, from the ladder of bones that litter the Atlantic floor and the blood that soaks South Carolina soil, I rose out of where I came from, carried by valley wind forces, a cooling balm that opened my eyes, flared my wings in a fierce act of resistance. I roamed the world, still speaking a fluent poem tongue, becoming. Oh my, thank you for that, Glennis. That, that does capture some of the stories people tell about coming into the mountains. I know Jamon Hill, a poet that we both are acquainted with, when he first came to the mountains, he didn't know the Appalachians were smoky. And then when he saw all those clouds, he was so stunned how wet it was. And, and that was his entree into the mountains. And he did come to the Leaf Festival and he was performing in the Poetry Slam. Keeping on the subject of the green door for just a few more minutes so people will kind of get a history of it. Tell us your impression of that venue and the vibe of it when you were there and performing and what it looked like. I mean, the vibe was 
funky. It had edge to it. It reminded me of those of you who remember the old malaprops. When you went downstairs, there was just this energy. And so when I walked in, it was the place, but it was more of the people and the spirit that was in the place for me. And it felt a lot like, I'm I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. I grew up in Black Baptist church, but it reminded me with the call and response that people had. And I think that's why I was initially attracted to SLAM because I grew up in a call and response culture. And so this was really the first time outside of church, outside of the arts that I grew up with in school, that I was getting this conversation that was going back and forth. And it was just a lie. There was a part of my spirit that needed that. I considered it medicine. And it wasn't just the poets. It was the audience. The audience was very sophisticated. They listened to every word. They came back. They were loyal. They were grounded in many literary traditions. And so it it made it feel like home. I was spoiled because I don't think across the country you always get that, but we had that little oasis there. I really appreciated how I was taken in that night. You know, people thought, oh, Glennis is a slammer. She wants to win. You know, I do have some competitive edge to me, but it was never just about slam for me. It was about saving my life. It was about my voice that had been silenced. Um, when I said tap down for 300 years, of course, I'm thinking generationally, but I was thinking individually as well. And it was a place for many people to find their voice. Of course, you know, there was Alan Wolf there who was quirky and a master of setting the tone for us to all be there and be what we were. I appreciate it. And we were all so different from one another. I mean, there weren't a lot of Black folks at the time either. And I was one of the few that arrived and one that would uh, sticking and staying power throughout. I remember when you came and I remember when you walked in the door. And, and I also remember how this group of people, many of them really at the green door, came down all the time. They were like, wheat in a field they just opened up and you could come into the wheat and then you became part of the part of the wheat field and I remember you performing and I remember how impressed everybody was and then when you left and we sat around and talked about the evening we only had one really dramatic worry that night about you we were very concerned about you you may not know this but our concern was good god will she come back she lives so far away down in Greenville. Do you think she will? Do you think we could get her back to do another r- round of this? And there was all this talk about, well, well, we can maybe feature her. And oh my goodness, she'd be great on the slam team. And uh, where did she come from? That was that was what we talked about when you left. That's interesting because I was already plotting my way back on the drive down and probably my move to Asheville, which didn't take place too much longer after that. Within probably a year, year and a half, I had moved to Asheville. So that tells you the connection I felt to the tribe of poets and artists, um, Ashevillians, that I needed space to breathe for me. You know, um, it's amazing what 60 miles will do in a little altitude. You did so much for the Asheville community and the poetry community and lots of other groups within the 
Asheville area as well as beyond. So I'd like to shift just a little bit from the green door and have you tell people where that took you. I, I know where it took you. It took you all over the world. It took you into schools. It gave you an opportunity to earn a fine living as a performance poet. I remember the house you had in Kenilworth for a while. Beautiful house. I remember that your daughters were living there, having a happy time. And, and I always re remember you just being so devoted to it. And then I remember you went to Warren Wilson and got your MFA. And you've, you've been in this ever since. So tell us how you worked that and what you did and, and how it has informed your work throughout your life. And now you and I are, are older. It's been 30 years since we were there. So we are now in the elder territory and I'm happy to be there in that territory. And I know that, that you are, are happy to be in that territory because you understand the role of, of the elder. How it does, has all of this formed you and, and give us an overview of, of your career because I think it's important. This is possible for anybody well, Nave, you know, I was in my 30s. I'm not quite in my 60s yet. I was in my 30s when all of this started to unfurl for me. And I was full of fire. I mean, I was a frontline poet. I had a lot to say because I had just been tamped down so long. My first commitment was to myself to write it out, what I needed to say for myself to claim space as a Black woman in the South. So I always tell people the poet side of me is the introverted side, the part of me that needs silence, that can go away and be okay in books and be with myself. But there's the extroverted part of me who I believe is the teaching artist. And that is the person who's running poetry workshops, who's creating circles, who's creating places for other people to speak up and speak out just like I had that opportunity. So it's just that lifeline where I reach back. Everybody's not interested in that. Some people want to be poets, put in a book. That's what they want to do. Some people want to perform. They want to be on stage and travel and tour. That's what they wanted to do. I wanted to do all of those things. I wanted to put it in the book. I want to travel, you know, and then I also wanted to outreach. At the same time I was writing, I was also publishing, but I became a uh, teaching artist with the South Carolina Arts Commission around the same time all of this was happening. So I was not just at slams. I was at academic poetry readings. I was also on the roster to travel to schools to do poetry residencies, K through college, because I felt like I had the gospel. I felt like I had the good news. And I felt like I had something to say to students and teachers alike, especially those in the margins, how to widen your margins, how to speak up and how to speak out. This was not a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. It just started to unfold organically. And, you know, of course, when the Ku Klux Klan marched in uh, 1999 in Asheville, the concerned citizens, we got together and someone called and said, hey, do you want to do some poems there? We're not going to, we're not going to confront them. We're not protesting. We're going to do a unity rally. And so I showed up at the community center and did my thing. I, I think I had just written If I an African and I did If I an African down the aisle. And when I got finished, people up on their feet, a poem can work in many ways. Sometimes a poem will 
work and it's just silence. A poem will be met with silence. And then sometimes there's magic. The ancestors are in the room and the ancestors were in the room. You know, it wasn't me. It wasn't just the poem. It was the context. And when I got finished that standing ovation, it wasn't just Glennis Redman. It was about what we were standing up for to be seen in our fullness of who we are. And the Lloyd artists happened to be in the audience and they were my next door neighbors and had talked to me before, but they had never seen me in action. And they said, if that's what you do, we would love to sign you as one of our artists. And lo and behold, you know, when people say, well, how did you get your national start? I say, you know, it was the Ku Klux Klan. And people think I'm being facetious, but I'm being true. And I think someone born in 1963, someone born the day before King gave his I Have a Dream speech, there is a calling. I'm a dream kid. W.E.B. Du Bois died on the day of my birthday. And so I feel like there's these links. You have Du Bois, you have King. I was set in the ground to become who I am. And that trajectory just took off. I mean, I had no idea because they were like, we don't, we've never had a poet before. We don't know how it's going to work. And they signed me up for seven showcases. And they said, people usually get one showcase. I got five showcases. It was just that alignment, you know, and when I went to the showcase, they were practically all white and all men. Every once in a while, there'd be a woman or somebody of color. These are the the college showcases or the theater showcases and presenters would be there, you know, and after you perform for 15, 20 minutes and they book you for a year, what happened was fire. I got booked two years straight. It changed my life. I went from being below the poverty level because I had divorced, but I had taken this vow of poetry to do it for the rest of my life to my life changing in a month or two months time. I became upwardly mobile with poetry. You certainly did. And once that started, it never stopped. You've gone all this way. I've always admired that. And I've always loved your willingness to simply get out there on stage and get out of your own way and do something that's beyond Glynis. And I've always thought that was your you know, secret sauce, just stepping aside and letting something happen. And, and the reason I say that is because I often haven't stepped aside. I've gotten in my own way. And I've, I've, I've always watched you avoid that and I've admired that. I'm writing this poem right now. The title is, I say I, but I mean we. And I've never felt as myself as a singular. I feel pushed and buffered by my ancestors. Poetry is that kind of magical, mystical force that sometimes you read and it just falls flat. But you have to believe in the work. It doesn't matter who's there, if it's two in the room or a thousand in the room. I think there's a certain urgency. People have said this about my work, sometimes as a critique, your work is so immediate and urgent. And why does everything have to be so immediate and urgent? Well, I feel like because of the times we're living in and because who I have incarnated as this lifetime, 
that's why it's so immediate and urgent. And my ancestors who are surrounding me are <laughs> bidding me to push. I do get stuck sometimes in my own way, but I always have to talk to myself. Yeah, it's really not about you. Like if you, re- you wrote this, then you really do need to get it out there and then believe in the next step. And I don't always know what the next step is. People are like, oh, you did this and you've been here. No one sees the hours where you're struggling over a poem or it's 3 a.m. and you're a woman and you're out on the road and you have to walk in a hotel and there's a group of men that you have to get to your door, your door's on the outside. That's why I'd never, I changed a lot of things in my contract as I got older and wiser. It's like, be safe. They're not going to take care of you, take care of yourself. And sometimes people will say, well, that's diva. No, that's safety. It's like how to figure out how to take care of yourself because my goal was to do this for the long haul. It was never about any scene or uh, moment in time. I wanted to have longevity. And so I have figured out some things on how to take care of myself. Well, you certainly have. And I would like to just for a moment pause and remind people, if you've just tuned in, that we are having a wonderful conversation with poet Glennis Redman, a good friend of mine whom I've known for years. And as you know, if you've been listening up until this point, we're just talking about our lives, poetry, and and how we've we've made our way through this wonderful art form that we both have loved and has treated us both very, very well. And I wanted to also say that you're listening to this show, Twice Five Miles Radio, Fertile Ground for Conversations Worth Having. I am the host, James Nave, and we're broadcasting on WPVM LP, Asheville 103.7. We're streaming online, WPVMFM.org, and that's the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and, and, and also on other community radio stations like KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. And I'd like to thank Walter Parks for the theme song, walterparks.com, if you're interested in in Walter's music. And if you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com, nave is spelled N-A-V-E, jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you if you have a story or some thoughts on poetry or thoughts on life, or maybe even tell us where where you are and, and what you're up to and what your life is like, a report from the field, if you will. would love to hear that. Uh, jamesnave.com you can email me through through my website and so let's let's come back to glennis glennis before we pick anything else up would you tell people your website so they will know how to get in touch with you sure you can find me at glennisrebin.com just my name simply www.glennisrebin.com or you can find me on instagram at glennis making poetry rain r-e-i-g-n and you can connect with me there all right. And so there you go, folks. You can can connect with Glennis whenever you feel like it and find out more uh, about her work. Uh, Glennis, you were talking a little earlier about expanding the margins and how that was something that you felt like you were called to do. And I would like to start this part of the show by asking you to give us a sense of, of how you do that. And there are a lot of people out there listening to this show who would like to engage in the writing process. They're taking writing classes or they're, they're just maybe listening and thinking, I'd like to express myself. I'd like to expand my margins. So when you talk about expanding the marginalized, give us an, a good sense of what that means for you. Sure. You know, one of the things I can say about expanding margins, it begins with oneself. 
So I started way before I started touring, I would take a day a week and just meditate and write. So a full day just to myself. First, I felt guilty doing that. But my soul, my spirit, my vessel needed that peace. And so if you think about it, I was already expanding my margins just by creating that space for myself once a week. And people would try to impinge on that. But after three or four months, I was holding firm. They would say, oh no, that's your day. So what you guard, other people will guard and protect. And I do not think I would become a teaching artist and um, a poet with a wide span had I not created that practice for myself. These practices came out of Taking the Artist's Way, the book by Julie Cameron, which was a part of Expanding My Margin. And I don't know if you remember, you came over to my house one day when I lived in Black Mountain and you encouraged me to go to Natalie Goldberg's workshop. I was thinking of not doing it. And you would show up at times in my life and just say, you know, do it, Glennis. You know, what do you have to lose? That was the fire and the inspiration I needed. I went out to Taos and I had never been before. And that's where I bought my ring. I brought a ring. It was a full moon. I made a vow to poetry, come riches, come poverty, that I would do poetry for the rest of my life. So you were integral in my story and you have been in lots of ways of my life. I consider you family. I appreciate that moment of clarity that you had. So that was me shoring up me to do what I needed to do out in the world that manifested in me becoming expanding margins. What it was for me was what I had said earlier. I had been silenced a lot in my life as a Black girl in turning into a woman. And poetry became this vehicle for me to speak. And I felt like it was medicine. So what my life turned into as a teaching artist was like, well, then give it away. So I found places where I could give this art form away. I felt like I had enough agency and capacity to hand the pen to others. And that would be students, teachers, uh, CEOs, whoever. I would give people license to speak, but without the artist way in particular, and then that trip and working with Natalie Goldberg, I think those things were a part of the expansion for me. It's like, don't keep it small. Don't play small. Go wherever you need to go. But yet and still, I still have my eye on the community. There was a, a group called Project STEAM where they work with underserved teens. And Christopher Tunstall came to me and said, we would love for you to lead workshops here on Monday. And I said, I would love to, because here I am flying off, working with students all over the world. I would love to do that in my own community with some continuity. But it was important for me to connect with a group of students. And that was the first real connection I had with students in my community that I, we did. And I, we did it for five years. We created an anthology. We ran out Diana Wortham Theater. And the power of the pen was evident with these young people. And so that taught me how to run poetry circles. It just keeps rippling. I don't think I would be the, the mentor for the National Student Poets had I not had that connection in Asheville with the students in my own community. When you said a moment ago that you were made small as a little girl and then poetry allowed you to expand your margins, Right. What were some of the ways that you were made small? And then how 
did poetry allow you to have the authority to go big? So it's, a, it's like you can draw that right. diagram almost. Right. You're, you're right. I grew up in a very traditional family. Girls were supposed to be ladies and more prim, proper, and you definitely are not supposed to be loud and don't speak out. And the aspiration for me was to get married, not really to go to college. So I was always pushing against that. And so I was the first generational college student. Nothing wrong with marriage, but I didn't want it to be where I ended up only. And I was a tomboy. I was a tomboy from early on, which, oh, you know, my mother was always trying to keep me in check, you know, always trying to tamp me down, keep me. And I love her. My mother and I are close. We're you know, really, really best friends. But at the same time, I was not the daughter she wanted me to be. My sister is the daughter my mom wanted. My mother always said I maneuvered like a man. And she could not understand. You can read a map, you can drive, you do, you, you know, and, but that's what they call me when I was young. They called me mannish. And in the black community, that means you're acting like a man. But that was who I was. You know, my father and I had a very contentious relationship, but in a lot of ways, I'm very much like my father. I'm very outspoken and very easy, not easy to anger, but if I felt like I've been put upon, you're going to get whatever wrath. Do not suffer fools easily. When I found poetry, it was a way for me to just be fully who I was always supposed to be. Like I'm a free spirit. I've always been a free spirit. I've always loved the arts. I've always been unconventional. I've always been left of left. And all of those things are beautiful things, but somebody should have just told me early on, look, hey, it's okay. You're an artist. You're not meant to fit in. I was here trying to fit in in high school. And, you know, I ran track. I was a cheerleader. I did everything extroverted to kind of like keep me alive. But it was never the thing. It was books. It was ideas. It was philosophy. It was all of those things that brought me alive. And so that in particular was what I was pushing back from. And so when I work with students, especially high schools, you know, I call them the others. When I get finished performing, I will have a group of kids, all races. They're looking at me like, we've been waiting for an adult like you to say, I'm okay. You showed all of us how to do that. And that I think maybe was one of the ingredients we were so desirous of when we sat there at the green door saying, well, can, will she ever come back? And I did witness that with you. And I've always thought that was a fabulous, fabulous offering that you made. You stand up there and you model how to be strong, to be loud enough so everybody can hear you and yet never shout. And there's a big difference between being loud and shouting. And you've always been respectfully loud enough so people can hear you. And I've just always admired that. And, and it's a good model for people. Well, thank you. What I learned, I think, more from my counseling days and then the dysfunction I had to wade through growing up was more about showing vulnerability. You can be loud, but there are many different ways to be loud. Loud is not always raising the voice. You can whisper a poem and it be very loud. And you are yelling at the top of the mountain, but it's a whisper and saying, this is where I've been wounded. Although poems don't have to always be about woundedness, but for a while there, I did. I was saving myself, so I had to go to the wound. And I was also trying to figure out who I was because somebody had always told me, 
who I was. And I listened because I was a good girl. I was also a box checker. I knew how to achieve. But then there was also the part of me that said, you know what? You can't define me. You can't put me in a box. And I am going to carve my own path. You know, on that note, would it be possible for you to give us another poem? Because we've been talking about poetry this whole time. And before our hour ends, I would love to hear some of your work. And I bet other people would, too. Sure. This poem is entitled, Praise How the Ordinary Turns Sacred. Praise to my drawing lines. I only buy paper towels in bulk. So off to Sam's I go. When I get there, my needs turn into a bottle of wine, two dresses for my about-to-be-born granddaughter, and a pair of stretch pants for my daughter after delivery. Praise to the cashier who carded me that day. I asked her if she did not see me standing there with all this gray hair in my head, Praise to Black women. Praise to her response. I see you and I see it. I also know young folks wear gray in their hair these days. I said, thank you for that compliment. Praise to her smooth and easy ways that did not miss a beat. Grocery item, check. Compliment, check. Wisdom, check. Praise to her gray hair. Praise to her age, 70. Praise to her being comfortable in her own skin. I know her age because she told me she didn't look it. She defied it with the lightest of caramel hue. I said, you know, I love us some us. She smiled and said, thank you. Praise to slick elders. Praise to when like meets like. Praise to the pat on the back. Praise to being seen and seen. Praise that kindness don't take much and it don't cost you nothing. Praise to some people have jobs, other people on a mission. Praise to the vitamin D givers. Praise to the admiration and uplift. Bravo, Glennis. That's wonderful. I, 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 you, I, if you wanted to write part two of that, I'm sure you would have an audience. That, that's beautiful. And the woman in the store, what a way of framing something. Fabulous. Just absolutely fabulous. You know how you're just going out into the world and, you know, it's, it's a little awkward right now going back into the world because I had spent so much time in home and I'm like, I got, I got to go get these paper towels or I got to go get this. And it was just this lovely moment. And I think that's the role of poetry or the poet is to pay attention to these moments, how they just open. The world is closed. You're doing your thing. You're trying to get to point A to point B. And then the sacred is, the moment opens and you can ride by it and pretend it doesn't exist or you can stop. And I think this is what drives people crazy about artists and poets is that the poet, the artist is always gonna stop and pay attention to that and go, wow, that was, whoo, 
Did you feel that? That was a moment, you know? And so I, I think that's the beauty and that's what keeps me alive. And those moments happen so much every day, just right outside in my patio with the birds and the flowers, you know, these moments keep, and I think we're fortunate that we pay attention. Well, well, we are. I'm so thrilled that I can have you remind me of that because I do love to watch the birds and watch the un- unfolding. And I'm thinking now as we get toward the top of our, our hour, there are a lot of people out there who live very busy lives. They, they work, they have children around them, husbands, partners, maybe they're even alone. Yeah. And, and yet they're busy and they have the aspiration to move in the creative realms more deeply than they're moving right now. And I would love for you as we close to give some thoughts to the people listening on how they can stay true to the callings they, they've had all of their lives while at the same time staying true to their, to their families or whatever they're doing. Right. You don't have to forsake your family to write. I say start where you are and whatever twinges that you have, you pay attention to them and you do have to show up at the page with those twinges. Because if you don't show up at the page, the muse is jealous. The muse will go away. The muse will forsake you, but it's there all along. To me, everyone's intuitive. It's, do you listen to it? You know that moment where something happens, you're in your life and you say, oh, I should do that. And you go, ah, and you just kind of like put it to the side and do whatever. And then you know, right around the corner, you're like, ah, I was supposed to do that. Why didn't I listen? And that is what I'm talking about as far as writing is that you got to go, ah, not just a thought, just like a dream. You wake up and go, oh, I'll remember that dream. By 2 p.m., that dream is gone. You don't remember it. It seemed like it was so profound. It had so many messages for you. But if you don't pin it to the paper, it will fly away. So you have to be mindful to yourself. And I think when you are with a partner, with family, we put other people before those things. And that's what I'm saying. It's not selfish to give yourself space, to expand your own margin, expand your own tent, your own space. That is life-giving. That is pouring water on you as a flower, be your own gardener. I believe in taking care of oneself and listening. It's not a crime and there's no shame in it. And I am a gentle pen pusher and I say, write it out, do it. It's not therapy, it's therapeutic. I remember years back when Julia Cameron and I were doing the Artist Way Creativity Camps, we scheduled one in Black Mountain, North Carolina at at the Blue Ridge Assembly. And Julia was not able to come. We had a lot of students who showed up. And you came as one of the teachers because you had had some contact with Julia and she remembers you and and obviously you remember her. But I do remember that day you came in and you told people a similar story to the one you're telling now. And obviously that story paid off, but you told folks about how you set that time aside and that you guarded it. You guarded it really strongly and people respected those boundaries. And it rose out of the artist state, which is part of the artist way 
work where you take a little bit of time each week for yourself, put yourself on the front burner, non-negotiable. Even if the most famous person on earth calls you, the person you admire the most and ask you for lunch, you say, no, I'm sorry, I'm unavailable. I have a very important appointment. I'll see you at three. Likely the very, very important person will be so impressed. They want to know who is this person and they'll come back. So right. you, you gave us that and, and you still obviously are using it to this day. Well, you know, that date with self is so important. I no longer just have a day, like all the days are um, reserved for writing and self, except for my, you know, grandkids and my loved ones. No, I really take the, the role seriously. And I would say to anyone who is grappling with, I don't know, I don't know how, just do it. And if you're afraid, good, because I was terrified to look within. And it was the places that I was so afraid to go were the places where I needed to be to shine light on those obstacles. And most of them were self-imposed. Most of them, I had created ghosts that were larger than the actual (laughs) fear was. And when you get in there, it's not as scary. Claim your ground, claim your voice, be you to the highest sense of self, be on the top of the top of the mountain, be you and sing that song as loud as you can. And there's a power in that. And when people see you connecting to that power or anyone else connecting to that power, it's magical, it's inclusive, it's embracing, and they will listen. So a lot of people are timid about expressing what they've written to the public or putting it out there. They're, they're timid. They're even a bit afraid. Oh, gee, I'm going to reserve this for myself. I am an, a fan of the opposite. Just give it out. Right. And Nave, this is what I've learned. So many people are broken by experiences they've had in the past, you know, by teachers who told them they couldn't write, they couldn't draw, they couldn't dance, and they listened and they believed. And so when you are tending to yourself, you really are tending to others. When you give yourself permission, you also are giving permission to others as well. And so I am mindful that our people have been hurt in ways that are unfathomable, but we have to love ourselves so we can save ourselves. And I mean that poetically, I mean that creatively, and also physically, I mean it too. Yeah. Well, poetry has saved many lives over the years, and you and I have both seen it. And I imagine it will continue to do that job for some time to come. I agree with you. I mean, it saved my life. I don't want to be hokey about it, you know, but it saved mine. And that's why I'm on the bandwagon. I know it can save others, whether you want it as a career or just, you know, just to jot your observations down. Note the world in all its beauty and struggle and strife. You know, I love memoir. I love to go back when, especially artists who tell us how they did it, because it's not an easy road. I'm not trying to make it sound like it's all easy because there's a lot of struggle, but my life would have been way more of a struggle without poetry in it. Because you would have been small and in South Carolina and conforming to, to the traditions of, of community and family and probably would have had a, an okay life, nothing like what you've had now and nothing like what you've given to the world. 
Right. I mean, I think I would probably not be here. I probably would be dead. And people know that I've struggled with cancer this year. Even with the cancer this year, um, poetry has done me another service, gave me a place to rest and wrestle. I'm just so grateful that I have an art form to fall on. Poetry has been my soft place to land. And that's a wonderful soft place to land this interview. I really appreciate you being in my life for all this time, Glennis. Uh, I love you very much, and I'll say that publicly. And I'm, you know, sometimes I keep that quiet, but I'm getting a little more verbose these days. I'm not so stamped down. <laughs> and, and it's just, just so wonderful that we can have this conversation and be in the world still together and with lots of good things to look forward to. Well, Nave, I love you too. Thank you for being part of my tribe and showing up as a guide in many places in my life. And um, you are dear to the world and what you do and continue doing, giving back and giving to us and creating these circles, these much needed conversations that need to happen in the world. Okay, well, thanks so much, Glennis. And maybe we'll do this again sometime soon. I hope so. All right. And that, my friends, concludes our conversation and visit with Glennis Redman, and yet not quite concludes. We are still a bit of a way from the top of the hour, so let's continue on with some of Glennis's poetry. Glennis gave a TED Talk a few years back, and in the TED Talk she offered her audience a couple of poems. So I would like to offer you the same TED Talk poetry that Glennis gave her audience in Greenville a little while back. So let's turn to Glennis giving us some more poetry. This poem is dedicated to my mama who happens to be out there in the audience. Her name is Jeanette Redman. Without her, I would not be the woman I am today. This poem is called Mama's Magic. It goes like this. My mama is magic. Always was, always will be. There is one phrase that constantly bubbled from the lips of her five children. My mama can do it. We thought my mama knew everything. Believe she did as if she were born, full blown from the Encyclopedia Britannica. I could tell you stories how she transformed a rundown paint peeled shack into a home. How she heated us with tin tub baths from a kettle on the stove put over in there like an elixir. My mama is protection like those quilts her mama used to make. She tucked us in what cut out history all around us and we found we could walk anywhere in this world and not feel alone. My mama never whispered the shame of poverty in our ears. She taught us to dance to our own shadows. Pay no attention to those grand parties on the other side of the track. Make your own music, she'd say, as she walked and cleaned the sagging boards of that place. You'll get there. You'll get there, her broom seemed to say with every wisp. We were my mama's favorite recipe. She whipped us up with her two big brown hands and a big brown bowl supported by her big brown arms. We were homemade children, stitched together with homemade love. We didn't get everything we ever wanted, but we lacked for nothing. We looked at the stars in my mama's eyes, and they told us we owned the world. We walked like kings and queens, even on midnight trips to the outhouse. 
We were under her spell. My mama didn't study at no Harvard or Yale, but the things she knew, you couldn't learn in no book like how to make your life sing like sweet potato pie sweetness out of open window. How to make anybody, anybody feel at home. How at just the right moment be silent and with those eyes say, everything's gonna be all right, child. Everything's gonna be all right. How she tended to our sickness, how she raised our spirits, how she kept flowers living on our dilapidated porch in the midst of family chaos. My mama raised children like it was her business in life. Put us on her hip and kept on moving, keeping that house pine saw clean, yeah. My mama's magic always was, always will be. Her magic, how to stay steady and sure in this fast-paced world. Now when people see me with my head held high and my back erect and look at me with that, who does she think she is? I keep on walking with assurance inside. I'm black magic, and I'm Jeanette Redmond's child. This next poem that I'm going to end with is a poem that was inspired by um, Middlesex County Academy in New Brunswick, where I was working with gang members and also a group from, uh, uh, who are working with addictions. Uh, this poem is called Bruised. I wrote for them. They banter back and forth like boys do. You charcoal, son. You so black. You purple. I tell him, hold up in defense of my mahogany skin and the boy they're putting down. You know what they say. In cue, as if we rehearse it, we both chime. The darker the berry, the sweeter the juice. We flash twin smiles, and there's a moment when the air gets less complicated in the room. The space is large enough for me to ask, why y'all hate on each other so hard? Oh, oh, he my boy, see? That's how we show love. I am so tired of everybody being gangster hard. I want to weep. They're keeping it real, though, because I got three brothers, and growing up, I never saw them show love, except in that man-on-man, oh man, dunk in your face, call you ignorant 10 times a day way. Their talk swags like their walk. The conversation dips and drags, and we end up talking about how we were punished as kids. And I leave with, I'm from the South, y'all, and y'all don't know nothing about no switch having to go around back, fetch your own hickory, the same one used to beat you. I say these words and I can still feel the sting of the switch. See the welts raising into an angry language of graffiti on my skin. Another one says, and don't bring back no skinny one neither. I nod my head in solidarity. The blood we spill makes us kin. Another boy says, what about those belts? And I can hear my mama's beating cadence. I told you not to, didn't I? <laughs> Another says extension cord. I'm brought fully awake because I don't know nothing about that kind of beat. We only heard Cedric down the street getting beat like that. Then we did not know the phrase child protective services. We did not know the word abuse. We just said his mama was mean. Hikante, another one says, huh? You kneel on your knees on raw rice for hours. We go down dark alleys. They go deeper into the shadows, 
further than I have ever been. But we don't skip a beat. We laugh. We joke about our beatings. And nobody, nobody, nobody mentions the pain because it's all understood. We are all battered. We bump up against each other's wounds before we brainstorm. I pick up the markers. They bicker blue versus red. I read between the gang signs. It is not lost on me when these two colors mingle. They make purple. I muse in my mind how violence for them still continues. But we come back to these poems, the poems we are here to write, the ones that have saved my life. But these detour down old roads is a place we had to go, places we have been loved so hard it hurts, so hard we are still bruised. We bear our scars, and then we pick up our pens and write. And you've just heard two poems from Glynis Redmond to close out our show. So I would like to thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, Fertile Ground, for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting this show first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The Voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. I would like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks. If you are interested in any of Walter's music, Walter's website is walterparks.com. Walter does a lot of great music. He's a wonderful singer-songwriter. He's also a provocative thinker, so he puts lots of preparation and thought into the material content, if you will, he produces for folks. WalterParks.com, if you'd like to know more about Walter's work, and JamesNave.com, if you'd like to reach out to me. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. I am always curious about what's going on in other people's lives, and that's, of course, true for your life, wherever you are, so it'd be great to know about that. JamesNave.com is how you can reach out to me. And also, I'm doing something every Saturday morning at, at 10 o'clock, and it's a, a wonderful gathering, a salon, a, a writing circle. It's open to anyone who wants to join it. It's just a way of getting writers together, and Glenn has spent a lot of time talking about writing. So if you have an interest in having some writing time with other writers and exploring what we're calling the imaginative storm, from the imaginative storm to the creative form, that's how we frame it, and it's an, the idea is dancing between your imagination and your rational mind. Not getting out of the rational mind, just dancing between imagination and the rational mind. Imaginativestorm.com is the website, and there you will find a link to the Saturday morning gathering, plus other things as well. And so that's something that I enjoy, and I'll bet you will too. I hope so anyway. So imaginativestorm.com. Once again, thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. And I do hope you tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.